And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, December 7th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the Defense Intelligence Agency is close to releasing its artificial intelligence strategy. Plus, a big milestone in the long effort to get rid of chemical weapons. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the open season clock is ticking. Federal employees and annuitants have just until Monday to make any changes to their health care options for 2024. Now, not every enrollee in the Federal Employee Health Benefits Program should make a change to their plan. But at least be sure you understand what's available out there. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins me with more. And there are lots of things that experts recommend taking a look at, including taking a look in the first place at comparable plans and what they cost. Fair to say? Exactly, Tom. I think that is the number one piece of advice here. Even if you're not going to make a change, it is really strongly advised from a lot of different federal health care experts that you at least take a look, see what's changing within your own plan. Not every plan stays the same year to year. So even if you are uh, rolling over into the same plan for the next plan year, things might look a little bit different year to year. Uh, some feds, you know, they might be in the position where they haven't looked for several years. And so uh, federal health experts, just as they do every year, are encouraging uh, employees and annuitants to take a look. You know, in these uh, plan brochures, there could be things like cost share changes. There could be new benefits added, things that are no longer available. So it's just uh, very wise. That's the general advice. If you're not going to make a change, at least take a look. Sure. And some plans you might have liked that weren't in your area now might be. And you could have the rug pulled because some plans are pulling out from where you are. And then you'll get automatically assigned to an OPM designated, I think it's a GEHA plan. And so, yeah, you want to stay in control, basically. What are some of the big changes in coverage and options for 2024? Well, in terms of the number of plan options, Tom, that I think is a is a big one to take note of. Uh, participants now can select from 158 total plans. That's a quite a significant drop off from the 271 that were available for the 2023 plan year, and that is mostly due to the fact that Humana is leaving the program. Uh, those who were enrolled in a Humana health plan will be automatically enrolled in the lowest cost health plan if they don't make a positive election. But that is something to pay attention to, to anyone who uh, was enrolled in one of those programs. In terms of types of uh, different coverages and things of that nature, we're going to see a big increase in infertility treatment coverage. Uh, That's a big one for 2024. Maternal health care, gender affirming care. So those are a lot of the areas. A lot of areas where uh, the Office of Personnel Management is setting higher requirements for carriers to offer coverages in those areas. Um, for the military side of things, they're going to get access to dependent care flexible spending accounts. So this can go; uh, these are pre-tax contributions that can go towards dependent care services like child care, elder care, things of that nature. So. There are a lot of things to, to keep in mind this year. And no matter what you do, it looks like premiums are going up, I think, on the average of nearly 8% following nearly 9% last year. So those aren't even across the board, though, necessarily. Right. We have seen for a couple of years in a row now that there are big health premium increases for at least the enrollees share. It's going up 7.7% on average for 2024. But as you said, Tom, that's 
an average. So that means not every plan is going to be going up. There are going to be some that are decreasing, some that are staying about the same. So it is prudent to take a look here and see, okay, is my plan going up? All of that information on the plans and the the rates there is going to be available in your plan brochure. So that's on the last page, I believe. Right. Yes. That brochure. I mean, all the information is there. You just have to open it up and spend a couple hours reading it. It's supposed to rain Sunday, so that might be a good day to do it. (laughs) But that is taking you down to the wire since Monday is the last day of open season. And one way people can hedge against these costs perhaps is going from self plus one to having individual plans for your partner or spouse, provided you look at the deductibles, because that can have an effect on that. What are some other things people can do to keep costs under control. The one that people talk about a lot is using a flexible spending account. The FSA Feds program, which OPM runs, uh, it basically lets you set aside, again, pre-tax contributions where you can cover uh, you know, things like healthcare expenses, prescriptions, uh, dental and vision coverage, and a child and adult daycare expenses as well. So it covers a broad range of things. This is, the program is available to all current federal employees, but only about 20% actually use the FSA Feds program. So that's a, a really big one where OPM and other federal health experts, such as Kevin Moss, who we've spoken to on a number of occasions, uh, have really recommended taking advantage of FSA Feds. Notably, if even if you have an FSA Feds account, uh, you will need to opt in again the next year. It doesn't automatically roll over. And some of those funds, if you had an FSA this year and you're carrying it into next year, you can roll over uh, $610 of unused funds. So you, it is a good way to kind of budget out and see uh, what, what you can cover there. But the point is you've got to make sure you actively enroll in at opt-in each year. So that's exactly. something that's not going to happen automatically. And aside from reading all of the coverage that our own Drew Friedman, you, have been providing for these many weeks, what are some of the other resources feds can look to for help in the weekend they still have left to get to open season? Great question. There's a lot of different resources, even if you've procrastinated. All that stuff is out there for federal employees and annuitants in the program. Number one, the Office of Personnel Management's website has a plan comparison tool where you can compare, I believe it's up to four plans at once, and see what's available uh, both regionally and then based on what your coverage needs are. You also can, as you mentioned, Tom, look at the plan brochures. You can look at the last page to check the premium rates. You can check Section 2 to see what is changing from this year to next year. And you can also, of course, there's other resources like uh, the Consumer's Checkbook Guide. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff out there, a lot of resources for federal employees to, to consider this year. All right. Nobody can say we didn't tell you. <laughs> federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And by the way, for more information, check out our own open season exchange at federalnewsnetwork.com. Lots of information there. Still to come, a big milestone in the long effort to get rid of chemical weapons. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. Earlier this summer, disposal experts from the Defense Department destroyed the last remaining M55 rocket filled with deadly sarin nerve agent at a storage facility in Kentucky. It was a major milestone, marking the safe elimination of all declared chemical agents amassed between World War I and the late 1960s. To find out what men who were involved with this extensive initiative, we turn to the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Threat Reduction and Arms Control, Kingston 
Reef. Mr. Reef, good to have you with us. Good morning, and thank you so much for having me. I guess I didn't realize that this effort was going on until this late into the, you know, towards the end of 2023. Give us the background here. These were assembled and, I guess, intended for possible use in warfare until that was declared out of bounds. Fair way to describe it? Yeah, sure. So first, to to contextualize my role, I represent the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, which is responsible for the manage of the Assembled Chemical Weapons Alternatives, or AQUA programs, efforts to destroy the last 10% of the declared U.S. chemical weapons stockpile housed in Kentucky and Colorado while ensuring the department's compliance with the Chemical Weapons Convention, which is the treaty that prohibits the possession, development, and use of chemical weapons. And the destruction of approximately 30,600 U.S. tons of chemical agent that was originally housed in nine declared chemical weapons stockpile locations is an achievement that has been decades in the making and was achieved, as you noted, when the Aqua program completed destruction operations with the processing of the last GB or sarin-filled M55 rocket at the Bluegrass Chemical Agent Destruction Pilot Plant in Kentucky on the 7th of July, which was a little over two months before the U.S. commitment to destroy the entirety of the declared U.S. chemical weapons stockpile uh, by September 30th of 2023. And what is the process required to destroy one of these things? You can't just blow it up because then it would smear around what it is you're trying to get rid of. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. It takes a lot of dedicated members of the workforce and the community in the last two stockpile locations, Kentucky and Colorado, to to reach a unified path forward for destruction of a chemical weapon. The previous 90% of the chemical weapons destroyed across seven of the nine sites in the in the country prior to 2012 was done using neutralization for bulk containers of chemical agents and incineration for actual uh, chemical weapons filled munitions. And so the department, in collaboration with the surrounding communities in Kentucky and Colorado, impacted by the last 10 percent of the declared stockpile, ultimately selected neutralization followed by biotreatment for the chemical weapon stockpile in Colorado, and ultimately neutralization followed by uh, secondary weight, uh, uh, off-site uh, disposal of the resulting waste. And I should add this, that this was extremely dangerous work. Uh, These weapons were not designed to be taken apart. They had to be painstakingly disassembled in reverse because they were designed with the sole purpose, right, of detonating on the battlefield and inflicting horrendous suffering on their victims. So the achievement really has relied on decades of hard work by thousands of military and civilian employees uh, and, and contractors. And we owe them a massive debt of gratitude and are very proud of the fact that they were able to complete this extremely important mission safely. This sarin then was not simply in canisters in a warehouse, but inside something that still had the energetics and the explosives with it? That is absolutely correct. Yes, in the form of rockets. And the sarin itself, was it a powder, a liquid? I mean, what what did you find when you managed to open up these things? Yeah, a liquid nerve agent. Yep. Got it. And the bomb part of it, how do you open up an old bomb? Because if you 
not careful, you could detonate it because you don't want to whack on the uh, accelerator. And so what do they do? Take a circular saw and kind of cut it in half in the middle? I mean, give us a sense of what it actually takes Yeah, here. I mean, you're, 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 you're right. As I mentioned, it's a very, it was a very painstaking process. The weapons had to essentially be painstakingly disassembled and reversed. There were different types of munitions that we were, were dealing with that required different types of processes to to ultimately disassemble. Generally, the first step was re, was to remove the, for, for the rockets, the rocket motors, and for some of the artillery munitions to remove the the energetics uh, that you mentioned. And then for some of the, the warheads on top of the rockets, there would, basically, there would basically be a cut that was taken and holes punched to drain the rocket of the agent and then to neutralize that agent. And by neutralize, I mean reduce the the toxicity, if you will, of the agent in compliance with what is required by the Chemical Weapons Convention. And then for some of the mortars that we had, which which contained largely mustard agent, we, we used very what amounted to high pressure water power washing to to rinse the agent out of the munition and then basically baked the remainder of the munition at very high high temperature to render what was left scrap metal. And then finally we also used at, at both locations what were called static detonation chambers, which which effectively is a thermal destruction technology whereby we put the entire rocket or the entire mortar into the, the chamber, heated it to an extremely high temperature, and in a contained and safe way, the munition exploded within that chamber and all you know, the remaining agent was thermally destroyed. It sounds like sort of fun and scary all at the same time. <laughs> a very important mission to to meet a very high priority U.S. international treaty commitment. And are there any long-term learnings from the destruction process that might apply in other domains of, of weaponry and weapons handling and, and life cycle management here? So certainly I think one of our priorities is to ensure that we retain the the human knowledge, the technical knowledge that went into the destruction of the declared U.S. chemical weapons stockpile. The Chemical Weapons Convention is one of the most widely adhered to international agreements that has ever been negotiated. But there are still four nations that are not party to the convention, and we know that several of those nations uh, still have chemical weapons. So whether it's in the event of a battlefield contingency down the road or in the event of uh, a diplomatic opening with one of these countries to whereby they decide to, to join the Chemical Weapons Convention and destroy their chemical weapons stockpile, we want to be in a position to, to aid and assist in that. Likewise, there are states parties, members of the convention, notably Russia and Syria, who have signed up to the convention, who have ostensibly destroyed their chemical weapons stockpiles, but we know that they retain uh, chemical weapons, that they retain offensive chemical weapons programs. So the department, the government needs to be in a position to, again, in the event of a contingency or in the event their behavior changes and they renounce those programs to be able to assess and destroy chemical weapons worldwide. Because the U.S. has had experience in helping other nations with Correct. their own destruction. An experience that we are very proud of. We have assisted numerous nations in the destruction of their chemical weapon stockpiles. So that includes Russia, that includes Syria, that includes Albania, that includes Panama, just to name a few. But the fact that there are a couple of nations that still retain these and that they could potentially be used means that the United States has to retain the ability to protect its own 
warfighters from the effects of such a weapon. So that's something you can't discard yet. Absolutely. And we have a, a program uh, within within the Defense Department under the leadership of my boss, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear and Chemical and Biological Defense Programs that is focused on exactly that. All right. So what comes next now? Are you sure you got them all? <laughs> We're absolutely sure we got them all. Uh, we, we destroyed the entirety of our declared chemical weapon stockpile, as I mentioned. And I want to add that it's, it's really hard to overstate the importance of the milestone that we achieved in July. 100% of the world's declared chemical weapons have now been destroyed. And for the first time, an entire category of declared weapons of mass destruction has been eliminated. And one of the most important actions the United States could take to contribute to a world free of chemical weapons was to follow through on our own treaty commitment. And with verifiable completion of destruction operations, uh, we've done just that. So with, re with respect to what comes next after the completion of destruction operations of our declared chemical weapon stockpile, the Defense Department is now moving into a phase whereby we will safely close the two destruction facilities in Colorado and Kentucky that house the remaining 10% of our chemical weapon stockpile. And closure is expected to last three to four years. Uh, during that closure phase, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, which is the implementing body for the Chemical Weapons Convention, will continue verification activities until all uh, treaty accountable waste items from the destruction process are disposed of. And the department is planning to spend over $2 billion to close out the program over the next five years. Wow. Will there be at least a plaque commemorating what happened on this site? <laughs> there will be, I think it's fair to say, commemorations of what, of what happened at each one of the facilities. Kingston Reef is Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Threat Reduction and Arms Control. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. You can find this interview on our website at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, I know you're busy, but don't overlook end-of-year financial planning. But first, the Defense Intelligence Agency is close to releasing its artificial intelligence strategy. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Defense Intelligence Agency is like a supply chain of information products in support of the armed services. It has its own supply chain, though, for software and data and the infrastructure to support them. So it, too, must concern itself with security and reliability of its supply chain. Artificial intelligence is coming into that effort. To learn more, I spoke with the DIA's chief technology officer, Ramesh Menon. Here's an excerpt. The big challenge for me as a CTO is how do I do these new things like artificial intelligence, quantum technologies? And I think I've been fairly successful in my first term as a CTO. Uh, I was able to establish DIA's AI strategy. In fact, earlier this week, General Barrier signed off on it and we'll be announcing that to the public, sharing it to worldwide. And it was a great accomplishment from the team and the extended community. I had a lot of listening sessions with our J2 co-coms, with our Intel service centers, with other IC agencies, with OSD, CDAO, and really understand, right? When we create any strategy, it's about truly understanding from a stakeholder perspective, what is that they require and what are the gaps? And once you have a strategy, then I have to operationalize that strategy. How do you do that? How do you create underlying force structure, the organizational design, the processes? And technology is changing at a very rapid pace. 
especially what we have seen in the last two years, right? It's been one year since OpenAI launched GPT, Chat GPT, and it's been taking off at a very fast rate pace. So we really are trying to figure out the best scenarios for decision support, decision augmentation, and decision automation for human machine and machine machine teaming. And that would take a while and the underlying governance structure for it. So there are some mandates to stand up a centralized governance team that enables federated execution. So I'm also the chief AI officer for the agency. And one of the goal is to collaborate with both DOD and IC to ensure we put some guardrails. I mean, ultimately technology is to help human beings and we need to be controlling the technology, not the other way around. Sure. And let's talk about the technology base a little bit that you're dealing with before we get into the AI and the supply chain issues. But it must be, again, being not an armed service, but in support of combat, you are almost a purely, in some sense, technologically, information technologically based outfit. Yeah, of course. Technology, platforms, data and algorithms is the future, in my opinion. The tra- if you t- think of like a key enablers for anybody. And it's not just a government thing, even in private sectors, the platform-based business models are evolving. And we need to truly leverage our core capabilities, partner with our industry partners and allies to ensure we reduce duplication, we collaborate, and we share information that will give us strategic advantage or intelligence advantage. And certain areas, we do extremely good jobs. Certain area is a cultural and technological change. And the underlying funding model is equally important because getting a project funded is relatively easy. Creating a sustainable organizational capability needs a lot more thoughtful thinking and realigning what you have in terms of people, process, and technology. Some of the processes will will change. You probably might have seen some of McKinsey's point of view on like 50, 60% of the processes that somebody is doing might be automated. So there is automation, which is the theme that's happening. There is human machine augmentation that's happening or augmenting human intelligence, right? Machines are augmenting human intelligence, not necessarily replacing, but it makes us do more with same. So there is great focus on productivity. And in the commercial side, with all the balance sheet reset due to inflation, this would take off much rapidly than what's happening in government. But as a technology leader, I want US government to lead and be ahead of these things and drive and shape and create underlying structures that will give us that strategic information advantage in the next decade or even further. And what you say about the idea that funding models are important, it's easy to get funds, it's difficult, relatively easy to get funds, <laughs> but it's more difficult to, to build that sustaining, as you put it, sustaining organizational capability. That means you have to be selective in what you decide to undertake, because knowing that you have a choice of things you could ask for funding, more difficult is making sure that that funding can be used in a way that's effective because you need that capability built into the organization. That That is very, very, very true. And I would say that at least on the IC side, we do an extremely good job with that. At least with my experience with the strategic investment guidance and the SIG process, which gives us the FIDIP money for five years, is very thoughtful. 
We have a lot of deliberations. I, I was on the expert panel evaluating those things. And we truly decide what is good for the country. And we do higher priorities to joint proposals. If five agencies want to do the same thing, that gets higher priority instead of giving some siloed, shiny object to some one agency. So we do collaborate and it forces us to collaborate, right? I would say this puts emphasis on the next generation of leaders. We not only need leaders who are smart, curious, open-minded, but we also need people who can collaborate with others. So we are truly stepping out of our little silos and doing the right thing for the country. And at least on the IC side, we because we cannot shift much, right? There, there is a portfolio. The ability to manage change in a large complex system is relatively small. So we have to look like maybe 5%. And even if we can do a good job of shifting the portfolio 5%, that's a great success. And let's talk about the forthcoming AI strategy to the extent that you can. There is a DOD AI strategy, and now we've had for a couple of months a federal government-wide AI strategy. So you must have some conformance to those initiatives and those priorities. But what's what might we expect specifically for the IC community in AI and specifically for the DIA in what, what it is you're going to be coming out with? Excellent question. So we started off with listening sessions. We listened to all our key stakeholders and we had different pillars, five unique pillars against which we were looking at the capabilities, gaps, or what we are good at. Uh, the first is talent and skills. It is very important to upskill and cross-skill our people because nobody is going to give us 10,000 new billets. That's not going to happen. So how do we upskill and cross-skill our people? Second is platforms and tools. Do we have the underlying digital platforms and the tools and processes to do this work? Do we have an MLOps capability? Do you have a model exchange? Do you have data sharing processes in place? Do you have underlying infrastructure for sharing that data? Because AI is nothing but extracting value from data for human machine teaming and machine machine teaming. Mm -hmm. That being said, and third is tradecraft. We provide these reports to our policymakers, warfighters, and senior leaders. And we want to make sure that information we provide complies to certain regulations like ICD 203. So we have instituted a quality assurance framework in our analysis team to ensure that whatever an analyst is producing complies to the ICD-203 framework. We are also looking at experimentation. How do we truly accelerate the speed and scale of innovation? How do we bring in younger, new generation of workforce into the government so we are an ideal mix of people who understand the complex system processes and people with that drive and passion for with curiosity and innovation to create new capabilities? So it's a, partly it's a human talent is a big part of it. And of course, the fifth pillar is partnerships. How do we operationalize our partnership? And our first priority is to operationalize with our 5Y partners. So I think we are, we have looked at it holistically from platforms, tools, skills, tradecraft, mission priorities, experimentation, and partnerships. Ramesh Menon, Chief Technology Officer of the Defense Intelligence Agency. There's much more to the interview. Find it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com and search Insights. Still to come, I know you're busy, but don't overlook end-of-year financial planning. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Tis the season to be jolly, but don't get too distracted from important priorities. 
like end-of-year financial planning. For some orientation, I spoke with Tiago Glieger, a wealth advisor with RMG Advisors of Rockville, Maryland, a firm that specializes in federal employees. There's so much that people can be doing between now and the end of the year. And one of the big ones that we see around this time of the year is getting ready for capital gain distributions. If you own a mutual fund investment inside an account that is non-retirement, so this is like an individual account or a joint account, then this is something you're going to want to be watching for because every year right around this time of the year, mutual fund companies are going to pass on those capital gain distributions to you as the investor. This happens because other investors throughout the year are selling their funds, they're redeeming shares, so the capital gains get realized throughout the year for that mutual fund. And here's the thing that people miss is even if you don't sell that mutual fund, you're still going to owe the taxes on that money. And so that happened big time last year where people were losing money because the markets were down and they still owe taxes. So that's a big thing that's going to come up to them next time they have to pay taxes in the coming year. That would not include funds in your TSP. Correct. That's the good thing about tax-deferred accounts like a retirement account is you don't have to worry about those distributions because the only time you're taxed then is if money comes out of the account. So unless you took money out of the TSP, no taxes to worry about. On the other hand, if you have a Roth, what happens? Yeah, and that's the good thing about the Roth too is the Roth, there's no taxes. So that's one of the big benefits is you get to touch that money, pull it out of the account without having to worry about taxes at all. It's, you know, the higher your tax bracket goes, the more that impacts a federal pension if you have that, social security taxes, capital gains, all kinds of things get impacted by that. And what about required minimum distributions, either of your own TSP if you are retired and you haven't done that in the year? I mean, is there a timing issue there? And what about an inherited IRA also? Some people, as they get along and still working, may have those in their bank too. That's right. Yeah. The RMDs is everybody's least favorite topic at the end of the year because they're thinking about this huge tax bill that's going to come down. And so minimum amount of money has to come out of your retirement account if it's pre-tax because it's money that's got to grow with no taxes yet. So you owe the taxes on the money and you have to think about where is this money going to come from? Are you going to use this as a time to rebalance your portfolio because you have to make some sales to generate the cash? Do you want to just use cash you already have on hand? Maybe your other investments are down and you don't want to sell them at a loss. You may also want to be considering taking more than your minimum amount. And this is the case if you're thinking down the line, you might be in a higher tax bracket than you are today, simply because your minimum distribution will be bigger or because tax rates might be going up here in a couple of years if the tax laws don't change. So maybe you take a bigger chunk out here at the end of the year this year while you're still in a lower bracket. That's something that's been really popular for Feds. Many Feds, when they do retire, are not ready to stop working. And if you're at a certain level coming out of the federal government, you've got lots of offers from industry and a lot of feds take them. You know, oh, when'd you go there? Okay. <laughs> and so you have this full-time income coming in, but you might actually be at the RMD age, which I guess is up to 71 and a half now. And so how do you figure out all of that when you're working and you're retired, so to speak, for purposes of your annuity and your TSP withdrawals. Yeah, the challenge in working in retirement is if you have the annuity already, that's fully taxable. If you are of RMD age, that money is fully taxable. So you keep stacking more and more money on top. So thinking about where your tax rates might be in the future, if we have the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act sunsetting here in 2026, which is how the current law is set, set to sunset unless they make changes, tax rates are going to bump. And so you might be thinking, okay, if that's going to happen and I plan to continue working through those years, I'm immediately going to pay 3%, 4% more taxes then than I am right now. So 
maybe I take bigger distributions out of my retirement accounts while I'm still in a lower bracket. And what about gifts that can offset taxes? This is the time of year when people think about that too. So maybe, you know, instead of that car, <laughs> you could get a lesser car and give charitable contributions to offset taxes. Yeah, that's a really big one, Tom, because if you are of a certain age, and the key age here is 70 and a half, you can do something called a qualified charitable distribution, or known as a QCD. Now, it works nicely with an RMD, which, by the way, used to be 70 and a half. As you said, it has gone up, went up to 72, then 73 to 75, depends on when you were born. But the key here is that it allows somebody that's 70 and a half or older to take a distribution from their retirement account, send it directly to the charity, and you don't owe taxes on that money because it went to a charitable organization. The charity doesn't owe money, but you also get to satisfy your RMD. And you think of the other way of making a charitable donation. If you're going to cut a check and just write it to a charity, you've paid taxes on that money already. And if you're itemizing, you probably had no tax benefit of just writing that check. So if you can do it out of a retirement account, do a QCD, that can be extremely beneficial because everybody gets to save on taxes and you get to do some good in the world and meet your RMD. And what about fixed income annuities? These are available from your alma mater in, in some way, so they get your money now, and then they give you this percentage on that money, almost like a CD type of arrangement, and you can get them from financial institutions. Good idea, and is year-end a good time to enter into one of those? I think the end of the year is always a good time to be thinking about your strategy for next year. One thing that we encourage feds as they think about these kinds of annuities is whether they want to trade the liquidity of their capital for another type of pension. Because an annuity is sort of like a pension. We have Social Security that they've paid into. We have their first pension that they've paid into. And some people really like that guaranteed stream of income, that guaranteed 3 or 4%, whatever the annuity is offering. But that requires them exchanging a chunk of their liquid assets for that annuity. But if that can help give you peace of mind, then that's something that should be contextualized within their retirement plan and can be very helpful. Right. And they come in different sizes. So you can kind of decide how much tolerance you have for setting that part of your TSP aside. That's where you would take it from. And there's probably tax implications there, too. Right. Annuities have their own kinds of taxations. If you are moving it from a tax preferred vehicle to another tax preferred vehicle, you do get to maintain that tax preference. But you do have to be careful because if you take the money out, it's considered a distribution and then you put it back in, right, there can be taxes on that transition. So, And also on the topic of IRAs, you can make children's contributions at this point for how? How does that work? Yeah, that's a really popular one, Tom, because if you have a child that took a summer job, maybe they were at the pool or whatever it is, as much as they earn, they can contribute that to an IRA account for themselves as well. Now, kids, most of the time, they're going to want to keep that money. They're going to use it for pizza or for school or something like that, hanging out with their friends. So parents and grandparents can make that contribution up to $6,500 as long as they earn that for 2023. And some of our clients will do these annual IRA contributions for their kids, for their grandkids, even into their 20s. And that's a really nice way to help the kids begin to think about saving and investing for themselves. We almost always suggest a Roth for them because they're in a low tax bracket. They're not earning a lot of money. If you do it right, by the time they're 30, they could be sitting on potentially six figures of tax-free money that can just put them so much further in life by having that there. Sure, yeah. And don't buy a car with it either. Yeah. Right, exactly. Keep it for the next 30 years, and then you'll really be happy. <laughs> right. And what about Roth conversion? We should probably review the pros and cons of that at this point. 
Yeah, at the end of the year, you can decide whether or not you want to fill the rest of your tax bracket by taking some money out of pre-tax accounts, like the traditional TSP, traditional IRA, and converting it to a Roth. You pay the taxes by doing that, so you're filling your tax bracket. But again, it's that age-old question, what tax bracket are you projected to be in the future? If maybe this wasn't a year that you had tons of income, maybe it was a first year of retirement, you may consider filling up your bracket to whatever level until you hit that next percentage bracket. Take the taxes at a slightly lower rate if you think you're going to be paying more in the future because you're earning more, you have RMDs that will cause that, or the tax laws might change. And if you do any of these things we've been discussing, moving around funds, adding, subtracting, they all have tax implications. Does the online tax system that people are using have those rules and those requirements built into them such that you just fill in the numbers and your tax will be calculated accurately? Yes and no. You know, I think TurboTax and a lot of those systems have come a really long way and they do a really nice job for what they offer. But I think that if you input the information incorrectly, if you use the wrong form for whatever reason, you could cause some challenges. We always ask people to double check with an accountant, of course, they are the tax professionals. Because sometimes it's not just about getting the number right, it's the planning of whether you should even do it in the first place. So if they have financial planners, if they have accountants, those are good people to bounce these ideas off before you do something, and then you have to go back and undo it. And you could jump into Santa's lap at the mall. Do they still have malls with Santa's? I don't even know. Don't and ask know. for a new tax code right. that's 10 exactly. pages long or five pages long. <laughs> that would really be a contribution to the advancement of humanity, but Indeed. it's not going to happen. No. And finally, there's the question that comes up periodically, especially this time of year. Do you move your funds out of the TSP because you're annoyed at you know, their cost ratios or rising you know, for the TSP, I guess they're still pretty good relative to industry. And what's your thinking on just stay in the TSP or maybe try that fidelity type of thing? Yeah, I think if you're still working and you're contributing to the TSP, you belong in the TSP. You should be maximizing every last dollar that you can into those contributions. Once you retire, you can think about whether or not that vehicle is meeting your needs. How many times do you need to take distributions throughout the year? How frequently do you need those? The TSP has limitations in how the money comes out. And so you compare that with what are your other options. And when we talk to clients about meeting their needs, it's really determining what is your plan going to require for you to meet your objectives? And then what are the best tools available for you? Every one of these custodians and different options has pros and cons to them. You just have to find the one that works best for you. And maybe we should end this by saying, yes, the gift season is coming on, but it's basic. Don't run up your credit cards to give nice gifts. If you can't afford it with cash, then skip it. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Having to then take money out and pay taxes on it to pay off a credit card bill doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Tiago Glieger is a wealth advisor with RMG Advisors of Rockville, Maryland. There's much more to the interview. Find it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Invest in the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 57 past the hour. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. 
Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, December 7th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the Defense Intelligence Agency is close to releasing its artificial intelligence strategy. Plus, a big milestone in the long effort to get rid of chemical weapons. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the open season clock is ticking. Federal employees and annuitants have just until Monday to make any changes to their health care options for 2024. Now, not every enrollee in the Federal Employee Health Benefits Program should make a change to their plan. But at least be sure you understand what's available out there. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins me with more. And there are lots of things that experts recommend taking a look at, including taking a look in the first place at comparable plans and what they cost, fair to say? Exactly, Tom. I think that is the number one piece of advice here. Even if you're not going to make a change, it is really strongly advised from a lot of different federal health care experts that you at least take a look, see what's changing within your own plan. Not every plan stays the same year to year. So even if you are uh, rolling over into the same plan for the next plan year, things might look a little bit different year to year. Uh, some feds, you know, they might be in the position where they haven't looked for several years. And so uh, federal health experts, just as they do every year, are encouraging uh, employees and annuitants to take a look. You know, in these uh, plan brochures, there could be things like cost share changes. There could be new benefits added, things that are no longer available. So it's just uh, very wise. That's the general advice. If you're not going to make a change, at least take a look. Sure. And some plans you might have liked that weren't in your area now might be. And you could have the rug pulled because some plans are pulling out from where you are. And then you'll get automatically assigned to an OPM designated, I think it's a GEHA plan. And so, yeah, you want to stay in control, basically. What are some of the big changes in coverage and options for 2024? Well, in terms of the number of plan options, Tom, that I think is a is a big one to take note of. Uh, participants now can select from 158 total plans. That's a quite a significant drop off from the 271 that were available for the 2023 plan year, and that is mostly due to the fact that Humana is leaving the program. Uh, those who were enrolled in a Humana health plan will be automatically enrolled in the lowest cost health plan if they don't make a positive election. But that is something to pay attention to, to anyone who uh, was enrolled in one of those programs. In terms of types of uh, different coverages and things of that nature, we're going to see a big increase in infertility treatment coverage. Uh, That's a big one for 2024. Maternal health care, gender affirming care. So those are a lot of the er areas. A lot of areas where uh, the Office of Personnel Management is setting higher requirements for carriers to offer coverages in those areas. Um, for the military side of things, they're going to get access to dependent care flexible spending accounts. So this can go; uh, these are pre-tax contributions that can go towards dependent care services like child care, elder care, things of that nature. So. There are a lot of things to, to keep in mind this year. And no matter what you do, it looks like premiums are going up, I think, on the average of nearly 8% following nearly 9% last year. So those aren't even across the board, though, necessarily. Right. We have seen for a couple of years in a row now that there are big health premium increases for at least the enrollees share. It's going up 7.7% on average for 2024. But as you said, Tom, that's an average. So that means not every plan is going to be going up. There are going to be some 
that are decreasing, some that are staying about the same. So it is prudent to take a look here and see, okay, is my plan going up? All of that information on the plans and the the rates there is going to be available in your plan brochure. So that's on the last page, I believe. Right, yes, that brochure. I mean, all the information is there. You just have to open it up and spend a couple hours reading it. It's supposed to rain Sunday, so that might be a good day to do it. (laughs) But that is taking you down to the wire since Monday is the last day of open season. And one way people can hedge against these costs perhaps is going from self plus one to having individual plans for your partner or spouse, provided you look at the deductibles, because that can have an effect on that. What are some other things people can do to keep costs under control. The one that people talk about a lot is using a flexible spending account, the FSA Feds program, which OPM runs. Uh, It basically lets you set aside, again, pre-tax contributions where you can cover, uh, you know, things like healthcare expenses, prescriptions, uh, dental and vision coverage, and child and adult daycare expenses as well. So it covers a broad range of things. This is, the program is available to all current federal employees, but only about 20% actually use the FSA Feds program. So that's a, a really big one where OPM and other federal health experts, such as Kevin Moss, who we've spoken to on a number of occasions, uh, have really recommended taking advantage of FSA Feds. Notably, if even if you have an FSA Feds account, uh, you will need to opt in again the next year. It doesn't automatically roll over. And some of those funds, if you had an FSA this year and you're carrying it into next year, you can roll over uh, $610 of unused funds. So you, it is a good way to kind of budget out and see uh, what, what you can cover there. But the point is you've got to make sure you actively enroll in it, opt-in each year. So that's exactly. something that's not going to happen automatically. And aside from reading all of the coverage that our own Drew Friedman, you, have been providing for these many weeks, what are some of the other resources feds can look to for help in the weekend they still have left to get to open season? Great question. There's a lot of different resources, even if you've procrastinated. All that stuff is out there for federal employees and annuitants in the program. Number one, the Office of Personnel Management's website has a plan comparison tool where you can compare, I believe it's up to four plans at once, and see what's available uh, both regionally and then based on what your coverage needs are. You also can, as you mentioned, Tom, look at the plan brochures. You can look at the last page to check the premium rates. You can check Section 2 to see what is changing from this year to next year. And you can also, of course, there's other resources like uh, the Consumer's Checkbook Guide. Uh, So there's a lot of stuff out there, a lot of resources for federal employees to to consider this year. All right. Nobody can say we didn't tell you. (laughs) Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And by the way, for more information, check out our own Open Season Exchange at federalnewsnetwork.com. Lots of information there. Still to come, a big milestone in the long effort to get rid of chemical weapons. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.